and shout your praises loud. I was lost in darkness when you pulled me out. I will sing forever of your love. Come down. in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain. For me who him to death
The moon and stars the morning sun was dead. The Savior of the world was fallen. His body on the cross, His blood poured out for us. The weight of every curse upon Him. One final breath He gave, and on that blackest day, the Son of God was laid in darkness. A battle in the grave, the war on death was waged, the power of hell forever broken. The ground began to shake.
sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. The Lamb has overcome. Father, we are here today because the Lamb has overcome. We have life in Christ. And we've come today to to worship you, to declare that we love you and to give thanks for your unending love for us. We pray that you would be glorified in our worship today. In all that we do, every song we sing, the prayers that we pray, the scripture we read, all the things that happen as a part of this gathering, be glorified and draw us closer to you. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others here in worship this morning before you're seated. Good to see all of you this morning. <clears throat> have just a couple of things I need to remind us about. You'll notice in the bulletin that the small groups are beginning this week. There's one announcement for the women's Bible study on Friday. And it says Sunday nights, but our small groups meet throughout the week in many different places. I'd like to draw attention to just two new groups that are starting. People have volunteered. Alex and Rachel Wright. Uh, you always wanted to know what's above the uh, post office. Well, that's where they live. And uh, they're starting a small group he would be leading. Uh, they meet Monday nights. We would love to have some people join with them. And then also uh, the Brewbakers. Dave and Luan have opened their home, and Terry Page will be leading a group. That's Thursday nights. We just are saying we have room for expansion. We have a number of groups. I didn't list them all. But if you'd like to be interested in those groups, there's a sign-up sheets in the back in the foyer for small groups, and the other groups are also, of course, starting. And then a second uh, small groups or Bible study groups that you've been hearing about will start next week, and that's the Logos Bible study groups for college students meeting in community homes. It's been a number of years since we've done that, and so uh, I won't do it because my memory is not good to tell you all the homes, but there are four sign-up sheets in the back, especially for college students who would like to have Bible studies, and they are held mostly Monday and Tuesday nights. That will start a week away. The last announcement would just be uh, a new thing in our church is a, an 11 o'clock fellowship and Sunday school hour for college students and uh, anybody from the community who would like to join and mingle and fellowship Jeannie and Don Little have opened up uh, their hearts to the college students. So at 11 a.m. in the Good Shepherd Room below the sanctuary, time of fellowship and uh, especially just getting to closer connected to the Lord and to each other here in our church. 11 a.m. Connection, it's called. Thank you. There are a number of other things in the bulletin, some inserts as well as other announcements. And look over these things and I think this is really the church being the church. It's the ways that we connect with each other as we uh, connect our hearts to God. And um, so we hope that you have a, you'll get involved in some of these things. There's a Wednesday night uh, prayer group. There are lots of prayer groups that meet throughout the week. There's a group that meets here at the church on Wednesday nights. 
Uh, you're invited, anyone's invited, of course, to be a part of that. Children's ministries are getting started, these uh, other kinds of groups. And all these are opportunities to uh, grow in our faith as we, uh, as we give ourselves in service and connection to one another. Uh, last week, we uh, collected our uh, jars for the Matthew 820 initiative. And um, you see in the bulletin, I, I don't know if you were surprised, I was a little bit taken back by collecting almost $2,500. Uh, we actually are over that. We're actually at $2,800 and over that. And they said there's still change to count. And there was a lot of change to count. Uh, about $600 in change, I think. Uh, someone said they were upward, getting closer to 2,000 pennies that were in the jars. So, which is awesome. Uh, I mean, I, I just think that that says that a lot of families and children were involved, I think. And so it's terrific. And that's exactly what we wanted to have happen. So we are, uh, if, you, if you haven't yet brought your jar, there's a basket in the back. You can drop it by the church anytime. We'll include that in the total. But also we're now embarking on the next quarter of continuing to think about refugees. And we have jars here and in the back. We have booklets as well for the next week. I want to thank Alex Wright for putting together both the last booklet and this one again. He did a great job with that. I really appreciate his uh, assistance in you know, putting together the books. And uh, take one of those. And again, whatever unit you want to do that with, uh, as an individual, your family unit, uh, roommates in the dorm, uh, suite mates, your floor, whatever the case may be, uh, just to give us more and more aware, awareness of the 65 plus million refugees in the world. And uh, time to pray together, time to think about that and let God's heart for them sort of begin to take on, be a part of what our hearts feel about them as well. I'd like to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God from all that he has given to us.
As we pray together, if uh, you'd like to come use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Lord, we come today to acknowledge that uh, Christ is indeed the risen King. Our lives are, have meaning and purpose because Christ not only died but rose again and is going to reappear and usher in the fullness of your kingdom and all of its glory. It is our hope, it is our life. And we come today to honor you, to praise you, to worship you. Father, even as we gather today and declare our love for you and our worship of you, we come acknowledging that we struggle with life. We struggle with our own sins and failings. We struggle with with the way that we treat one another. We struggle with the way we treat you. We struggle to love and to care. This morning we pray that you will forgive our sins, you will cleanse us, make us new. Father, we, we think about the, the world in which we live. And there's so many, so many burdens, so many concerns in this world. We think about the, the church around the world and so many of our brothers and sisters who face persecution and opposition. And today we... We think about the church in Uzbekistan. In this transition of leadership, there is uncertainty about what the the days ahead will be for the country and for the church. We pray that in the midst of this uncertainty, you will give to our brothers and sisters your peace and your grace to continue to be your presence in that place. Father, we, we think about people who are refugees, far from home. So much pain and struggle in their lives. We pray that you would bring peace, that you would allow them to be able to return to their homeland and their families. We pray, Father, for all who are struggling from recent disasters and attacks. We pray for all the places where there is conflict in this world, war and violence and nuclear tests and all these things that bring potential for fear, we pray that you would bring peace in the midst of the chaos. Father, we, we thank you for the ministries that are right around us. We think particularly of uh, the students at Houghton Academy. And as they uh, begin Sunday school groups today, and as, as they uh, move forward, many of the students at the academy are, have come here with with little knowledge of you, and we pray that they will see your grace in our lives and our witness. Father, we pray for for all of the schools around us and all the ways in which we educate our children. We pray for Houghton College and everyone involved there. We pray for a wonderful year. We pray for our public schools. 
that you would bless each of the schools that we're connected to in whatever way that may be, to bring your grace to bear. We pray for all who, who homeschool. We pray that, that you would bless each home and each student. And we pray that you would, you would make this task wonderful and, and glorious and rewarding. We pray, Father, for our children and our youth, that they would this year learn about all this, this amazing world and everything that's in it that you have created. And that in the midst of all of this learning, they would begin to know you in deeper ways. Father, we, we pray for the churches around us and the ministries of the churches around us. And today we pray for the Sojourners Mennonite Fellowship in Belfast and for Pastor Connie Finney. We ask that you would bless this, this fellowship of believers, that you would pour out your spirit upon them, and that they might bear witness to you in Belfast and beyond. And Father, on this day, when we remember the horrific events of 15 years ago, our hearts are broken for death and destruction and for pain that didn't end, but for many continues. Fear and anxiety about this world in which we live. Father, we pray that you will continue to bring healing. We pray, Father, that today, rather than than dividing us as a nation and a world, there would be a deeper sense of your grace and who you are, uniting us in Christ. Father, let the church bear witness to your, your mercy and your grace and your peace in the midst of great tragedy. Father, we pray that you will minister to each of our hearts. For those who are grieving, we ask for your comforting presence. For all who are struggling with health concerns, we pray for your healing power. We pray especially for Cliff McDonald and Marilyn Maine, for Mildred Berry and Doris Asepian, for Blanche Weaver and Tammy Dunmire, for Luke Heisinger and Wade Marsh, for Sheldon Emerson and Bob Jobert, for Laurel Buecher and Bill Getty, for Warren and Ella Woolsey, for Phil Muecher and Mike Raybuck, for Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth and Dick Gould, for Emily Cricklar, and for others who are on our hearts and our minds today, we pray your healing grace. Father, life brings so many issues to us. Busyness, temptations, circumstances, frustrations, Through it all, we give thanks for your never-ending grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. May the promise of your Spirit continue to lead us to trust and faithfulness. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
After the scripture reading, children may be dismissed for children's church and for junior church. Today's reading comes from Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, and Galatians 2, verses 20 through 21. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God, the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sin to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we are already again said, so I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Galatians 2, 20-21 I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in a body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand as we sing together. We are a moment, you are forever, Lord of the ages, God before time. We are a favor, you are eternal, 
Please be seated. I think if we took a poll and we asked people, do you want to be free or in bondage, most people would vote for freedom. I mean, quite frankly, freedom is, I think, is something everybody wants. We see it all the time. If you listen to to a lot of the rhetoric in the political campaigns, a lot of it has to do with freedom. Today, as we mark this 15th anniversary of 9-11, a lot of people are thinking about freedom. In this country, we pride ourselves in being a place of freedom. Everyone is trying to think about freedom. How can I be free from this? How can I be free from that? How can I live a life of freedom? There is something about freedom that is sort of a part of just who we are as human beings. We yearn for freedom. We look for freedom. We're thinking a lot about freedom. And the question that comes to my mind is, why is that? Why is it that we are so enamored with freedom? And the answer may not surprise us, but it does surprise a lot of people. Because the reality is, freedom is something that has been given to us as a gift of God. Now, a lot of people think of God as a being that confines us. God puts restrictions on us. God is continually putting binders on us and building fences around us. And is always saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And quite frankly, sometimes as a church, we sort of give people that message that that's what God is about. But that's not what we read about God from the very beginning. If you, if you look back to, to Genesis chapter 1, we find that God is, God's, the writer of Genesis says, beginning in verse 26... Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea. To reign, that's an act of freedom. The birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, all the animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth, govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, all the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything has life. And that is what happened. And God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good. Now, we tend to think, so you can see how God is saying to them, look, this is all yours. You're free to roam in it. You are free to reign over it. You're free to govern it. You're free to to use it. It's yours, freedom. We say, well, when we get to the next chapter, God is saying, well, it's freedom, but maybe it's not. And when you look at chapter 2, beginning at verse 15, 
The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you're sure, you are sure to die. And when we read that passage, what we focus on is except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what we miss is that God says, you may freely eat the fruit of every other tree. And instead of focusing on all the freedom, we focus on the one little bit of restriction. But the reality is God created human beings to be free. God created us in a world, gave us this world to live in freedom. It is a gift of God. The problem is, because of our sinfulness, and it's really when sin enters the picture, that bondage enters the picture as well. And when we come to the book of Galatians, which we're going to be looking at over the next six or seven weeks. When you come to the book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with a church that has forgotten what freedom is really about. They have forgotten that freedom is a gift of God. They have forgotten that there is more to life than rules that we put on each other. And he pins this letter to try to address this problem. Now this is a, what it comes out, what's happening in the Galatian church is that there are, they're basically a church of Gentiles. And there are people probably from Jerusalem who have, Jerusalem mother church that have come to Galatia, to the churches there. And they have been telling the people that you're not really Christians unless you become Jewish first. You have to practice everything that's in the Jewish law. And once you embrace that, then you can come to Jesus. And the salvation that you have, that you think you have in Jesus, is not really salvation. It is, it's, not, it's not really relationship with God because you haven't embraced the law of Moses. And the people there are beginning to believe this. What I find fascinating is that this letter is not written to one church. You know, the letter of Corinthians is written to the church in Corinth. And Colossians is written to the church in Colossae. And Philippians is written to the church in Philippi. But this is written to the churches in Galatia, as he says in verse 2 of chapter 1. It, because Galatia is not a city, it's an area. It's a, it's a bunch of churches. And what strikes me about that is that it's fascinating how widespread this problem has become. That Paul can write one letter and address all these churches about the same problem. And what it says to me is that this is a universal human problem. It's a universal problem that we have this tendency to choose bondage over freedom. We have a tendency to choose rules and laws and formulas over the freedom that God has given us in Christ. At the heart of their argument is that Paul is Paul is not really adequate an adequate messenger to teach the gospel to them. And they, the accusations you can feel it underneath the what he writes, that they're saying, well, you know, we are from the Jerusalem church. We came from the apostles. We came from Peter and John and James. We came from these guys who knew Jesus personally. We came from, from the guys who carry clout, and Paul didn't. 
So our message is more important. And so Paul, beginning at verse 11 of chapter 1 and almost all the way through chapter 2, Paul gives his an autobiographical sketch of his life. And they, they wrap it all up in a gist. He says, look, the only reason I'm a believer is because I encountered Jesus. And everything I learned that I've taught you is from Jesus. I didn't learn it from the Jerusalem church. I learned it from Jesus. And in fact, he begins this letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ. There is authority in what he says. It's a word from Jesus. And that's significant. Because so often, a lot of the, the legalism, a lot of the rules and the forms that we, that we hang on to and grasp on to are rooted in our thoughts instead of God's thoughts. What's fascinating is that Paul says, well, if you want to talk about the Jerusalem church, he says, I did go there a couple of times, and here's the result of that. Here's what they said to me, beginning in a few verses in chapter 2 and chapter 1. He says, they supported me. They saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he'd given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me. And they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. And they praised God because of me. And the net result of this is that Paul says in verse 6, I cannot believe that you guys are acting so foolishly. What is wrong with you? It's interesting, in most, when you read most of Paul's other letters, he takes him a little bit to get into what he wants to talk about. If you read uh, most of the other letters, he begins a, a fairly significant section of, I thank my God for you, I love you, I care for you, you're so important to me, I'm so grateful for all the things you're doing. When you get to this letter, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, all the churches in Galatia, Jesus Christ has done great things for us. And then he says, I am astounded at how foolish you people are. He's, he's, it's such a big problem. It is such a difficult issue. He jumps right into it in verse 6. And he says to them, how can you be so blind? When I read that, I think about all the ways in which people try to scam us in our technological age. Do you get tired of that? You know, the phone calls, I'm so thankful for caller ID, Right? And, and, of course, they're getting better at that. You know, they're making the calls look like they're local a lot more. But, you know, you, you get these phone calls and you get, you know, the Internet scams and the email scams and all the ways in which people are trying to confuse us and trick us. And Paul is, in essence, saying that's exactly what's happening to you. You've allowed it to happen. You've allowed yourself to be, to be tricked into believing a gospel that really is not a gospel at all. Because it's really not about Jesus. And that's one of the things that you can always, you can always see. When we, when we start being more interested in human forms than we are in God's freedom, one of the signs of that is that, is that we, we become more enamored with us than with Jesus. We start thinking a lot more about what we want than what God wants. 
what makes us feel comfortable instead of living in obedience and in living in the freedom that is ours in Christ. And we have a tendency to, as a church, as people, to gravitate away from God and his freedom toward the bondage of all the ways in which we, have, we design and think about our faith. And what happens is instead of living in the freedom that God created us to enjoy, we live in bondage, enslaved. One of the things about, about this bondage, one of the things about legalism is that it, it, always, it always leads us to a place where, where we have a, um, a judgmental, critical spirit. We're always thinking about what other people are doing or not doing. And we judge ourselves as well as judging other people. Paul writes here, and as he begins chapter 2, he writes about um, how Peter, in verses 14, and he writes about how, how he says to Peter, look, you're living, you're living with the Gentiles, and you're eating with them, and you're acting as if they can do whatever they want. But as soon as these Jewish people show up from Jerusalem, you start acting like you don't know these Gentiles anymore. And you start judging them, and you're critical of them. And in the beginning of verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1, Paul says, those people who preach a different gospel should be cursed. Because they have this judgmental, critical spirit. And we have a tendency to do that. It's one of the ways you can tell that legalism is creeping into our minds and our understanding of God and we've given up freedom. is because we start feeling judgmental. We start thinking about more about who's in and who's out than about what God might be doing in our midst. I was thinking about a, an event that took place when I was probably 11 or 12 years old. I was traveling with my dad one time, and we were sitting down in a restaurant. And I, it's weird how you remember these things. I'm pretty sure it was a Ponderosa restaurant. Why I remember that, I have absolutely no idea. But I, I, probably because, you know, it's one of those you-can-eat, all-you-can-eat kind of things. But I remember sitting there eating, and a, a, someone that he knew, another pastor in the area, came over to our table, saw him, and they began to talk. And so I'm just sitting there, you know, just listening to this conversation. And the pastor was lamenting the condition of his son's life. And he was talking about how his son has gone astray and his son has, has wandered from the path. And this, this young man who, who was raised in the church and you know, went to Sunday school and every event of church and knows the truth about Jesus has completely gone off the rails. And he was lamenting this to my father. And my father was saying, I'm so sorry. You know, I'll be praying for you. I'll pray for him. And, uh, you know, trying to be compassionate. And so the man left. And I said to my dad, um, so what's going on? What happened to this guy? And I'm thinking drugs, prison, other kinds of addictions. I'm thinking about all the horrible things that could have happened to him. And my dad said, well, this man is really concerned because his son moved to California and has joined the Jesus people movement. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm 11, 12 years old, and I'm thinking, Jesus people, that doesn't sound like something to lament. That sounds like something you'd be happy about, right? And, he, and I said, I don't get it. I mean, I was totally confused. And he said, well, you know, we're a little suspicious of this group. 
And he was actually a more, my dad was very open about things. And so he was trying to be nice to this gentleman. But he said, there are a lot of people who are suspicious of them because, you know, they live on the beach and they wear hippie clothes and they, they dance and they sing with guitars and sometimes they speak in tongues. And, and they do things that, you know, make a lot of people in our genre of the church uncomfortable. And I'm thinking, but aren't they worshiping Jesus? Just not the same way we do. And there was just this judgmental, critical spirit. And what ends up happening is that we limit God in our legalism. When we start wanting forms more than we want freedom, we always limit God. We start saying, God, there's only one way you can work. There's only one path for people to come to you. There's only one, there's only one way that people can experience you and know you and live in you. There's just one way. And of course, what is that one way? It's our way. It's always our way. And we are continually limiting God. I mean, in Galatia, the Jewish people are coming and saying, you have to be Jews first. You have to, you have to embrace this first because that's how we came to Jesus. The law is important to us. The law is vital to our lives. And the law has helped us be ready to experience Jesus. And you have to experience Jesus the same way. God doesn't do it any other way. And Paul says, really? Have you ever gone through the Gospels and read through the stories of people who encounter Jesus and whose lives are changed and try to... Try to put into those stories the formulas that we have created about how people encounter and come to Jesus. If we're honest, a lot of the formulas we create are hard to find in the stories of people who encounter Jesus. It doesn't mean our formulas have no merit. It just means God's bigger than our formulas. I think about Zacchaeus. You know, here is a story of a man who is a tax collector, he's a, he, you know, he, he's a sinner, he, but he's interested in Jesus. He's so interested in Jesus that despite the fact that he is a very short man, he humbles himself and climbs in a tree so he can see Jesus. And when Jesus comes to him, sees him and says, hey, like AJ said last week, Jesus says to him, hey, Zacchaeus, you got any food? I'm going to come to your house to eat. And he runs down from the tree and he runs home and he feeds him and he says, I'm going to give away Everything I have, I'm going to pay people back, give away everything I have to the poor. And Jesus says, salvation's come to this house. I don't see in that story any of the forms that we tend to say have to happen before people can come to Jesus. But you can't deny that Zacchaeus is transformed. Doesn't mean that the forms aren't important at times. It's just that God's bigger than the forms. I think about my own journey. I spent a lot of, of my life wrestling with the fact that, that I was trying to fit my story into the forms that people had told me. This is, how, this is how you come to Jesus. This is what this looks like. And it was always about coming to the altar, 180 degree turn, doing everything, you know, it's, it, it's all the following all the rituals and the forms that you have to do. And I did that again and again and again and again. 
Because I was trying to, to come away from that with a recognition that I'm experiencing what all these other people say they experience. And then it finally dawned on me through a variety of people and sources that maybe my journey is a little different than other people. Maybe I didn't need a 180 degree turn. I was raised in the church all of my life, every day of my life. I was born on a Wednesday. I was in church on Sunday. And I was in church every Sunday after that and most of the days in between Sundays after that. I didn't need a 180 degree turn. I needed to just embrace everything that I had been taught. All the truths of the gospel. I needed to embrace those. Do I need to, did I need to have moments of confessing my sin? Of course I did. But I didn't need that kind of experience that people who have no knowledge of God and who come to Christ experience. And what dawned on me is that there is no one way for us to come to Jesus. It's just opening our hearts to Jesus. That's the freedom that God has given us. And that's what Paul's trying to help the Galatians understand and us understand. And maybe in your journey, you've wrestled with the same thing. Maybe you've been raised in the church. And all the while you're saying, I've got to have this kind of of experience that people tell me I need to have. And it doesn't happen quite the same way. And you live in frustration. And you live in bondage to the formulas that, quite frankly, people have created. When all the while God is saying, just... Come to me. Let's just do this thing together. Let me just transform your life. Let me just let me just let you know that I'm with you. That we're good. And relax. And live in that freedom. Sometimes we have to give up our formulas with people. And let God do what he wants to do in everybody's life. And when we're truly free in Christ, we can give up the formulas we've created. And not everybody has to do the same things that we do. Not everyone has to to feel passionate about the things we're passionate about. I was thinking about that with the refugee collection we're doing. You know, God spoke to my heart and that was important. And I threw that out to us as a congregation. But if it's not something that God has grabbed your heart about, then don't worry about it. It's fine. It's okay. If he does, awesome. If he doesn't, that's okay. Because God speaks to us all about different things. And there are things that God speaks to you about that he may not speak to me or others of us about. But that's the kingdom. And in the course of all of that together, we are the church. And someday, you know, we can come to the place, we do the prayer vigil. Every spring. This will be the, the eighth year this year that we do this three-week, 24-hour day prayer vigil in November. And it's an awesome time. And many people have had great experiences with it. But I suspect that the day will come at some point where we say, I think, I think we're done with that. And let's think about something else. And that's okay. It's good. What else does God want to do? What new thing is God wanting to do? And it's not about the forms. It's about the freedom that's ours in God. And it comes down to trusting God. Do we believe that God is bigger than the forms that we create? Do we believe that God's grace is what's really significant, not the forms that we have manufactured? 
as helpful sometimes as those forms can be. God's grace is bigger. In verse 21 of chapter 2, Paul says, I do not disregard the grace of God. It's all about the grace of God. The difference is, when, we're, when we are stuck in the bondage of legalism and forms, quite frankly, we are denying the grace of God. Because we're saying, what people, this has to be this way, has to look like this, has to be like this. And honestly, it becomes about us and what we accomplish. Instead of the grace of God and what he gives. And freedom is always, always, always rooted in the grace of God. And when it becomes about us, what we're really saying is, not just, I'm not that interested in freedom. It's not, I'm not that interested in God's grace. And that's what makes this so dangerous. It's not just about us. It's about the other people whose lives we, we put in bondage as well. That's why Paul is so harsh with the, with the Galatians and particularly with these people who've come from Jerusalem. Because it's not just about them saying, well, this is how God makes, this is how, what God has said to us and this is the forms that we're going to follow. But it's about everybody else has to follow those forms as well. And it drags people from freedom to bondage. From relationship to God, away from God. And ultimately, it's about Jesus. He says in verse 4 and in verse 7, tells us what Jesus has died for us. Our, our relationship with God is about Jesus. And I think if you wanted to take one verse in this whole letter and say this is the hinge point of the whole thing, it is Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's not about me. It's not about the forms I create. It's not about what I do or what I think. Because myself has died. It's about Christ who lives in me. And I trust in him. And in that trust, I find freedom. It's always about Jesus. And freedom, the difference between freedom and bondage always comes back to our understanding of Jesus. Is the gospel about what Jesus does? Or is the gospel about what we do and what we create and the forms that we have put in place? Which is worse? If our forms crumble and we see Jesus or if we become a bit blind to Jesus as we hold on to our forms. It's the perspective of what's really central. Why we exist. This summer, John and Andrew and I went down to Pittsburgh, as we've done a few other times, to uh, watch the, the Cubs play the Pirates a couple of games. And uh, if you've never been to Pittsburgh, and particularly their baseball stadium, PNC Park, you've missed something because it is a beautiful park. It, the, the setting on the, on the banks of the, I think it's the uh, Mahongahela River, 
it, it's, it's a beautiful setting. The bridge in the background, the buildings. It's a beautiful feel. feel it's a very family-friendly atmosphere. And we love going to this park, even when we root for the Cubs instead of the Pirates there. But what if this summer, on our, when we got to the park, we were so enamored with the beauty of this park that all we did was walk around the outside of it, looking at it. And we walked around the whole building, all around the, the huge, full city block of this building, just looking at the architecture and, and looking at the, the scenery and looking at the carvings and the statues they have on the outside. And, and we spent the whole time just admiring the building, and we never went inside to watch the game. I think if you were observing us do that, the first thought in your mind would be probably, these people are foolish. I think they wasted their money on buying the tickets. Who would do that? Who, who would go pay all the money to go, to go to a game like that, besides missing out on all the fun and the action and, and all that that's going on inside the stadium? Who would stand outside admiring this park as beautiful as it is? I don't know of anyone who would do that. And I think that's what Paul is talking about. We get so enamored with the ways in which we think we come to Jesus and encounter Jesus and live in Jesus that sometimes we miss Jesus. And when we miss Jesus, we live not in freedom but in bondage. And we miss the joy of the gift that is ours in Christ. The gift of freedom that God has given us through Christ. And we find it really hard to understand when Jesus says in Luke chapter 4 that he came to set prisoners free. And with John Wesley or Charles Wesley wrote in the hymn we sang a few minutes ago, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, followed thee. That's the gospel. That's the gift that God has given us. And my prayer is that we will embrace the freedom of our limitless God. the grace of Christ. Father, you know all the ways in which we can get in bondage. Think we create stuff that's good and important. Help us today to to let go. To see you. To live in the gift of your freedom. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. 
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>